Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and we thank you for your kingdom of, of truth, love, and, and liberty. We ask that your spirit will join us and lighten our minds. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to be effective witnesses for you and position us where we can do your, uh, your, your purposes at this time in human history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're starting a new quarter and the title of the quarterly is In the Crucible with Christ. And uh, we're going to start lesson one, which is the shepherd's crucible. Uh, in the introduction to the quarterly, uh, it says the crucified creator. In the introduction, the crucified creator. What does it mean to you that the creator God is the one who died on the cross? Does that inspire you or discourage you? Creator God is the one who died on the cross. Inspire you or encourage you? Well... In Old Testament times and during the Roman Empire, how do you think the pagan neighbor would react if you went and witnessed to them and said that your God is coming to die on a cross? Do you think the pagan neighbor would have been inspired and want to follow the God who could be killed by humans? No. no. I put in my notes, possibly because the pharaohs and Caesars also claimed to be gods. And they were killed by people or died. So maybe they would follow them. Maybe. But I think you're more likely right that, that if they, uh, if they really thought about it, no, they didn't want gods that could be killed. They wanted gods that were powerful. Why would powerful gods get more followers than gods who we can kill? Why would that be? What is sin causing us? They feel safer. There you go. Exactly. Sin causes us to be afraid. We want to be safe. So we want a God who's more powerful. Think about the five-year-olds arguing on the playground. My daddy's stronger than your daddy. Isn't that how it goes? Okay, and why do they say that? They want to feel safe, right? And this is exactly how it has been through history. Sin causes us to feel insecure. We want to feel safe. We defend against it by believing in a strong God who will keep us safe. But, but we also, though, don't want to be at the whims of these strong gods. We want to make ourselves feel safe so that we, we have powerful gods that we can influence by our behaviors, our worship, our offerings, our sacrifices to do what we want them to do. I'll bring the sacrifice, and then I'll get rain. Therefore, we can feel safe because we can manipulate and control our God. I'll offer him the right blood, and then he won't be mad. So how might the only true God, who would allow himself to be beaten and crucified, be received by many people? When you present him, the only true God, this humble God, has not a pillow to lay his head. Why is Jesus, our creator who is crucified, worthy of your heart, your love, your devotion, your loyalty, your praise, and your worship? Why is he worthy of that? He was beaten. He was killed. Because it's not merely about power. It's about the character of the one who wields the power. That's what it's about. And what does the cross tell us about the character of the one who wields the power? 
humble, meek. Yep, all that's true. But more. There you go. That's the key. He would rather. Jesus on the cross was not actually helpless like the two thieves. He still could have access to divine power and snuffed out his enemies the entire time. It was not denied him. He could have reached out for his divine power and killed his enemies. Yes or no? But what is demonstrated is he would rather let his human creatures abuse and kill him than use his power to stop us and take away our freedom. Get your mind around that. And that's why in Revelation, after the resurrection, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's worthy to have all power because he's safe with that power. For the rest of us, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, but not for Jesus. He is uncorrupted. And then you can read in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, that being the very nature of God, did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself into the form of a servant all the way to the cross, and therefore God exalts him to the highest where every knee shall bow. Because he has proven. It was always true. It's not that he developed something about himself that wasn't true before. God was always safe with the power, but the allegations of the devil were refuted, and the revelation that was always true is now historic fact. And the reason God will not use his power to force us into line, there's a reason. What's the reason? God is love, love, and love only exists in an atmosphere of Freedom. freedom. And if God were to use power to force us into line, love would be destroyed, a rebellion would be instilled in the heart, and we become empty shadow people or robots that can't love. That's why he won't do it. That's why it says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And the spirit is spirit of truth and love. And it's truth presented in love that wins the heart. And we, and this is why we must be free participants in the salvation process. God cannot save any person without their free participation. He has the power as the creator to reach into any person's mind and heart and rewrite it. He could do that. He has the power to do that in an instant. He, but the moment he does, guess who's not there anymore? That person is erased and a new identity is put in by the creator. The only way to keep your individuality and save you is through your personal participation in being a lover of the truth, coming to trust God, opening the heart, and choosing to apply what the Holy Spirit convicts you needs to be applied in your life. Then you are a participant in that transforming process, and your individuality is retained. That's how it works. third paragraph states, we can experience only our griefs, only our own griefs, our own sorrows. At the cross, he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. All of them. What do you think is being said here? The sins were laid upon The sins were laid upon him. And when people use, have you heard that terminology before? 
What does that typically mean? The sins were laid upon him. Who sins? Every person from Adam to when it's all done at the end? Hmm. And they were punished? He suffered the punishment for all those sins? Is that what's usually taught? Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Think that through. So the more sins that were put on him, it means he suffered more. So when we abort millions and millions of babies from being born, they can never commit sin. They don't have lives of sin. So we're actually reducing the amount of sin that got put on Jesus, so we're actually reducing his suffering. That would be a righteous thing to do, wouldn't it? I mean, if, you, if all the sins, if we have more sin and we put more sin on him, then we make him suffer more. So we want to reduce that. So Stalin and Hitler, who killed millions, tens of millions of people, and, and you understand, we all agree that when somebody dies, they stop sinning, right? So if we took, killed tens of millions of people, they, their lives stopped, they stopped sinning. How many trillions of sins didn't get put on Jesus? We're protecting Jesus, aren't we? We're stopping his suffering, we're reducing it. If that's the case, we should all become murderers. But do you see how completely foolish this type of thinking is? Yeah. Because it's focused on deeds and acts in some legal way that gets piled up requiring legal punishment of some kind. And typically, the people who teach this stuff teach that God was the one who punished him. The question is, what law lens do you look at this stuff through? The Bible's statement about Jesus taking our griefs and sorrows, Jesus taking our sins. Uh, What law lens do you look through? Do you understand sin in the same way you understand crime in the world today? It is breaking a law that the government has imposed that requires policing, arresting, judgment, and enforcement. The sins of the whole world and everything, they, his suffering was being separated from God is what I've been kind of taught. You know, he was separated from God, and that was his punishment uh, for taking all our sins. Mm-hmm. So th- I don't know what happened after that? Yeah, so we'll, we will, we're going to unpack this a little more. Unpack this a little more. So think of the human law idea. Uh, policing, adjudication with a ruling of guilt or innocent, infliction of penalties upon the guilty, uh, to punish for sin, which upholds the integrity of the law. That means that Jesus came as our substitute to take upon himself the legal liability. He came to be tempted like us and overcome the temptations and be sinless so that when he is punished by God for our sins, that punishment will not be legally necessary to apply to Jesus' record. Therefore, there is an unused legal punishment that has been paid to the heavenly authorities that can be transferred legally and applied to the account of those who claim the blood payment because Jesus didn't need that payment that he made. Do you think I said it in any way that functionally misrepresents the legal view? Or is that exactly what they teach? They may not use those words, but functionally that's what they teach, right? He came, took our legal position. He was put on the cross. He was punished for our sins. Our sins were placed upon him. He did. He was innocent, so, so he didn't have to die for his sins. His payment then can be applied to our sins. Isn't that what they teach? This legal application of inflicted punishment and payment of a blood debt to the ruling God is only able to be applied if the innocent party suffers for every single violation of the law. 
If there's some sin he didn't die for, then you can't have the payment made for it. So he had to have all the sins put on him. Do you you see this logic and how it goes? It's quite flawed. Therefore, all sins, every single act committed by every single person who has ever lived from Adam all the way down to the final end of sinners was placed on Jesus, and God punished Jesus for our sins. And thus they will say, therefore, his punishment, because he suffered for all the sins, is worse than any punishment anybody else will take. Well, first, uh, think this through with me. What kind of being, God or human, I don't care what type of being would actually choose to use their power to inflict punishment upon an innocent party purposely knowing they're innocent instead of the guilty. If God's kingdom worked that way, where it is righteous to find a willing, innocent person guilty and inflict punishment upon the innocent in place of the guilty and then declare that the guilty party is legally innocent because you've punished the innocent in their place, what would it say about that kingdom and about those in charge? Unfair. Unfair. And untrustworthy. Untrustworthy. It would say that that kingdom, think about living in a government like that. It would say that that kingdom and those rulers are unjust They're corrupt, and they're perverse. They perverse reality, declaring things to be one way when they're actually another way. This is why Satan has infected Christianity with the lie that God's law works like human law because it results in concepts being taught about God that make him look out to be like Satan in character. The source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death. Death for sin comes from God who tortures you and kills you for it, is what is taught. This is not reality in God's universe. This is Satan's perversion of reality. This idea, though, undermines trust in God and results in religious ritual, ceremony, and theology of blood payments, legal adjustments, and other means, notice what I'm going to say here, theologies that have as a function, because God's law is like ours. Justice requires punishment. God is a just God, so God will have to punish you for your sin. Uh, Jesus took the punishment, so you can claim that against your record, but if you don't remember them all and you forget one, that one's not paid, and so God will still have to punish you for it because he's just. And therefore, we have to have theologies to hide us and protect us from God. That's the most of Christian theology. Functionally, the purpose of what Jesus has done is to do something to hide us and protect us from God, not reconcile us to him, not pray like David, search me and see the wicked way in me, create in me a clean heart, O God, fix the brokenness, write your law on my heart and mind, take out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh. No, we don't pray. We pray, cover me with the robe of righteousness. So when the Father looks at me, he can't see my wickedness. He can only see the righteousness of Jesus. This theology is about hiding the reality of our corruption from the Father instead of removing the corruption and making us righteous, as the Scripture says the gospel is to do. We become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21, or covered by the blood, which can mean the same thing as covered by the robe of righteousness. We're just covered, and, and, G- and he sees the sacrifice of Jesus covering over our sin. But it can also mean 
legally covering over the record and erasing out of the book the record of sin. The blood has been applied. It's erased it. It's not there anymore. It's been removed from the record. Or Jesus is mediator, standing between us and the Father, pleading his blood, my blood, Father, my blood, because the Father's angry and wrathful and his holiness is offended by our sin and and it outrages him and, and he'll lash out with anger and wrath unless he sees the blood of his Son, which calms him down. Okay, I'll take, I'll count to ten. Or Jesus, Mary, and all the saints are pleading with him because Jesus alone and his blood is not sufficient. We have to add Mary and the saints in to get him to not act out against us. Understand, all these theologies are there because we have the false concept of God's law, like human law. God becomes the uh, supreme judicial magistrate and inflictor of punishments that we would not otherwise reap except he inflicts it on us. Thus, God becomes the source of death and the one from whom we need protection. It's a gross perversion of reality. Amen. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But it is not taught that way. It's taught Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the punishment of God for sin upon the world. That's how it's taught. He came to take our punishment. No, he didn't. He came to take away sin from us. When we turn to design law, that God is creator and his laws are the laws he built to op- the universe to operate upon and life to exist upon, We understand that sin breaks God's law, which is his design for life, and results in death unless God heals the damage and restores his law in us. Thus, the scripture is very clear. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Death does not come from God. Life comes from God. Death comes from sin. Christ came and took upon himself human flesh, they might say, destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil, Hebrews 2.14. Death doesn't come from God. Death comes from transgressing the law, which the devil tempts us into doing. Thus, the devil holds the power of death. Death does not come from God. But, but this penal view teaches God is the source of death. As inflicted. It's a lie. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death, James 1.15. Galatians, those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature, from that nature, reap destruction, not from God. God's the source of life. Death does not come from him. It comes from sin. The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sin. What does that mean, we are dead? In, uh, the penal people will tell you, well, yeah, it's a de- you're under legal condemnation and a death sentence. God just hasn't uh, pulled the trigger on it yet, but you're dead Legally. Is that what it means? Dead? No. We have a terminal condition which results in death unless we get cured by our creator and redeemer. Without Jesus, every single human being would die of this condition. Without Jesus. But God loved the world so much that he sent his only son to provide the remedy so that whoever trusts in him should not die, but have everlasting life. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself, the Bible says. There is no action of Jesus working on the Father. When Adam sinned, God did not get changed. When Adam sinned, God's law did not get changed. When humankind, when Adam sinned, humankind, Adam and Eve, in their very being, got changed. They were no longer loyal, faithful, holy beings who were simply in legal trouble. 
They were beings who were now alienated in heart and mind from the love of God and operating on fear and selfishness. They had a terminal condition, and they could not fix it, and none of us can fix it. So God sent a son to take our griefs and carry our sorrows, meaning he took upon himself the terminal sin condition that he did not choose to have by sinning. He partook in order, by so doing, he could destroy death and bring life and immortality to light. Second Timothy 1.10. He came to destroy the death-causing principle that Adam put into the species and restore the life-causing principle that comes from God. As a human, that's what he came to do. In the humanity of Jesus, he experienced the full weight of what sin causes. The temptations, the fear, the anxiety, the heartbreaking agony, and was tempted to use his power to save self. He was tempted to doubt his father. But with every temptation, he chose to trust his father and exercise the law of love. Thus, in the humanity of Jesus, get your mind around this, by exercising his human, not divine, human abilities, he destroyed death and the death-causing principle that he inherited through Mary and solidified in his humanity the life-causing principle he inherited through the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Into He solidified it into the humanity that he took upon himself. Thus it says in Hebrews, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Hebrews 5.9. Once he was made perfect. Wasn't he always perfect? No, he was always sinless. Bible perfection is maturity of character, being settled as an sentient and sapient being into loyalty and a devotion for God that nothing can shake you from it. Character cannot be created by God. Sinless beings, angels, Adam and Eve, can be created, but sinless beings, angels, Adam and Eve, can rebel and corrupt their characters. Character has to be developed by the being. Jesus came to eradicate the infection of fear and selfishness that Adam put upon us, the death-causing principle, develop a sinless human character operating on the life-causing principle, God's perfect law of love. Every act of sin committed by every single human being through history was not placed on Jesus and punished by God. Jesus partook of sin the sin condition that every human being suffers with and every human being is tempted by. And Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are in the same ways that we're tempted. Yet he was without sin. And he destroyed the condition, the carnal nature, if you want to call it that, that, that tempts us from within. So the Bible says we are tempted by our own evil desires. That's the carnal nature. In Gethsemane, Jesus is tempted with powerful human emotions. You see it, his anguish. That's that fallen nature that's tempting him. But 
He doesn't give into it. He still chooses the path of righteousness despite the emotional temptation he was going through. Yes. It seem like from the spirit of prophecy we get that it mentions about Jesus on the cross suffering because he was bearing the sins of many. He was thinking about our sins. I mean, that's how I understood it. Yeah, I'd like to see the quote. Why don't you bring it next week? Find it and bring it in. We'll read it exactly about what it's about. Because the bearing of the sin question, there's several different aspects of where, where that's true. Uh, she writes in one place about this bearing of the guilt or the sin. And it actually is not a legal uh, bearing. It is bearing, and if you read the context, it's bearing it upon his heart um, when he was rejected and, uh, and betrayed by Judas that bore upon his heart the weight of that hurt. That was not a legal, well, that, that betrayal now became a legal consequence in heaven and that legal consequence was put on Jesus. No, he bore it in his heart because his friend betrayed him. Okay? He had to bear the weight of that. And so that bearing, uh, when you use the language, go look at it. You'll, I, I've looked at many of her, her comments like that. They really are never legal bearing. That he's bearing the actual weight of the experience upon his heart. And the separation from his father. Well, we're getting there. We're getting there. No, you're exactly right. So, sixth paragraph on page three of the introduction says, uh, as we look at these people, uh, let me, let's read it here. Um, let's see, sixth paragraph, it says, as we look at these people, their experiences, their struggles, and their rituals, uh, trials of faith, we must always see them uh, contrasted against the background of the cross. We must always remember that no matter what anyone faces, Jesus Christ, our creator and redeemer, went through worse. Do you go, amen? Or do you go, hold on? Amen or hold on? How, let's, how is it true that Jesus went through worse? How, uh, how is it not true. Give you some questions. Did Jesus experience the longest time of unjust imprisonment of any human being? Being imprisoned by human authorities unjustly. Did he experience the longest imprisonment? Or have people been in prison longer than him? Did Jesus experience the longest time of being physically abused and tortured before dying of the torture of any human in history? No. The answer is clearly no. Uh, did Jesus experience the greatest exploitation by those in power of any person in history? Did Jesus experience the greatest betrayal of someone close to him of any person in history? I think it's a a, a greater betrayal to be betrayed by your spouse than by Judas. Personally. I think it's, it's greater to be betrayed by one who you are one with, unity with. She says, uh, Lucifer, that's a good one. I don't know that we can measure that, but we're talking about his humanity here on earth. He was betrayed and rejected of men. I don't think the betrayal of Judas was as great as a betrayal of a spouse. That's just my personal. You, you, you may see it differently. Did Jesus experience the greatest childhood trauma and abuse of anyone in history? Did Jesus experience the greatest marital conflict, abuse, mistreatment, and marital exploitation of anyone in history? The lesson says that he, he went through more and worse than all of us. And this is an objection you will get to, by thoughtful people. They will point out that, in fact, in human experiences, many people went through worse than what Jesus went through on earth in human experiences, if we're looking at human experiences. So how did Jesus suffer more? Well, some will say, well, he was tempted in ways that none of us can be tempted, uh, like he was tempted to turn the rock into bread. We can't be tempted that way. And that's true. But this temptation is different only in 
degree or form, not in type. This temptation to turn rock into bread is the temptation to use one's power for selfish ends. That is the core temptation. Use the power you have to serve yourself. That was the temptation. We may not be tempted to turn rock to bread, but many human beings have been tempted to abuse their power. Whatever power they have to use it to to advance themselves, often at the expense of others or exploiting others. Why would suffer, who would suffer more if they were forced to look at the sun at noon? Forced. A person who is already blind or a person with good vision? Who would suffer more? Why would the person with good vision suffer more than the blind person when they both have their faces turned toward the sun and their eyes forcibly opened? Does the sun treat them differently? Who suffers more if working in a sewer? A person who has lost the sense of smell or somebody with a good sensitive sense of smell? Who suffers more? So whose mind, heart, and conscience is more sensitive to the sinfulness in this world, the sin suffering, the abuses, the diseases, the sin sickness all around, who would suffer more in this environment? Those of us who are sinful participants and have certain levels of callousness built into our hearts from it, even though we've been reborn and we're becoming more sensitive, uh, do we suffer in the same way as Jesus would have suffered? So just journeying through the world was painful in certain ways to him, was it not? We've all heard about a person called Queen Elizabeth of England. And if you were told today that from this day forward for the rest of your life, you are not allowed to see her or speak to her or spend any time with her. How much of, how much would that impact your life? How much grief would you do? How much distress would you be in? How much sleep would you lose? How much worry? How much of a, of an emotional burden would that put on your soul? Would it? No. How about if you were told today that from this point forward for the rest of your life, you cannot see, speak, or talk with your spouse or your children? Would that, would that impact you differently? What makes the difference? Connection and relationship. So with Jesus, was his temptation to have his relationship with his father, whom he has been united with in the bonds of love from all eternity past, and have those broken and severed, was that some type of temptation beyond our real ability to fully appreciate and comprehend? Get your mind around that. I, I, we can't comprehend. How about this? Was, it, was the temptation for an infinite being to die greater than a temptation for a finite being to die? We can't really appreciate that either, can we? Was the temptation for an omnipresent being, a being who has existed from all eternity and can exist anywhere in the universe at any time he wants, uh, was the temptation for him to give that up and be isolated in a single human body for all eternity future greater than any temptation we'll ever face? And Jesus gave that up for us. He will never personally exist in all places and points again. He does so through the third member of the Holy, uh, of the God, the Holy Spirit is his agency now because he can't be his own agency everywhere because he surrendered that 
a divine ability for all eternity to save us. It's unbelievable. And I'm going to tell you these sacrifices, these temptations, we're just scratching the surface. Through all eternity future, we will discover more and more of what he's done for us. Do you see worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb. Jesus was tempted in every way like us, meaning in all the various roots of sin, fear, the fear and selfishness exploit us with. He was tempted with fatigue and hunger and thirst. He was tempted to use power for selfish ends. He was tempted with the bestowal of power or the gaining of power. I'll give you all these cities if you worship me. He was tempted with that. He was tempted with misquotation and misrepresentation of scripture. He was tempted with lies. He was tempted with overwork. He was tempted with false allegations. He was tempted with doubt, to doubt, to doubt, not with that. He was tempted to doubt. He was tempted to uh, do for others what they must do for themselves. Hear that. He was tempted to do for others what they must do for them. Solve my family disagreement with my brother. I can't solve your disagreement with your brother. That's between the two of you. You've got to solve that. He was tempted with false worship. He was tempted with poverty. He was tempted with wealth. He was tempted by rejection, by betrayal. He was tempted with fears of various kinds. He was tempted with physical pain and torture. He was tempted with death. But ultimately, Jesus was tempted in a way that none of us will ever have to face. No matter what we've gone through. Jesus went through something that no other human being will ever have to go through. They potentially could choose to go through it. In fact, the lost do choose it, but they don't have to. The saved never will. And that is, he tread the winepress alone. Every one of his temptations and struggles, particularly Gethsemane and the cross, he went through without the strengthening and comforting presence of his father. He was not filled with his father's presence at the cross. Stephen's face was doing what when he was going through his trial? Radiating like an angel. He had the comforting presence of God to encourage him and strengthen him. Jesus at the cross did not. He was abandoned. We will never have to go through trial and tribulation alone. Jesus went through as a human being without that presence. We'll never face it. His temptations were infinitely beyond anything that we will have to go through. So be encouraged. And why was Jesus tempted without the supernatural presence of his father? Well, what was necessary for Jesus to accomplish his mission and save the species? What did he have to do? He had to eradicate the death-causing principle from the humanity and fully restore the life-causing principle. How does he do that? He has to face and overcome death. As death is approaching him, if at any point he uses his power, which he still had, to stop death from taking him, he acts to protect self, who does he save? Self, it's an act of selfishness. The death-causing principle retains itself in Jesus. But instead, no one can take my life. I give it freely, surrendering himself in faith, trusting his Father, acting to choose love for others over protecting self. He eradicates the death-causing principle, destroys it at the cross, rises on the third day in a purified and new humanity, becoming the... Second Adam, the new head that we all can be grafted into and receive life. 
And the reason the father separated from him is because he had to die to eradicate the death-causing principle. And God is the source of life. And Jesus could not die still connected to the source of life. He could not accomplish the mission. So the separation by the father was not a punishment from God for sin. It was a joint cooperative tripart, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, were jointly cooperating for the accomplishment of the mission. And the father's role was to let go. Jesus' role was to commit himself through. The legal people will teach you a lie that God punished Jesus at the cross. It's not true. Yes? The uh, fascinating thing about this class is that when I, when I hear you go through all these things, somehow, in a way, I'm able to make even a, more of a distillation for myself. Which in this case is that Jesus made the absolute, ultimate freedom of choice available by making that choice to follow through with that plan so that he was not protecting himself, but he was protecting the freedom of choice for all of humanity and all of created Intelligence. Well said. Well said. Do you see the difference in the design law view and this corrupt Roman infection of imperial law that has taken over much of Christianity? And they take the cross and they present it in ways that actually present a dictator God who's like Satan in character. Yes. At the time of the movie, The Passion of Christ came out, I asked one of the theology students that we knew if he went to see it, because so many did. He said, no, he didn't, because all it emphasized is the physical suffering. That's right. Which is misleading. That's correct. That's correct. Because when you have a punishing, a penal human law view, you have to get lots of punishment physically to make the payment. And that's what it emphasized. So we're going to try, we're going to have to pick up the speed now. Um, Sunday's lesson, and we're getting into the actual first lesson, which is about the 23rd Psalm. And so the whole week is about the 23rd Psalm, and we're going to break down the 23rd Psalm, and we're going to look at it verse by verse. Um, the lesson, um, you know, what does the shepherd do to care for his sheep? Well, let's look at the 23rd Psalm and go through it verse by verse and see the lesson of what it's teaching. It's very, it's amazing. It's really amazing. So the first verse, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God is watching. He's watching out for, what, what's the verse say? Provisions. Anything you need. He's watching out for us to provide for us what we need so that we don't have to worry about where we're going to sleep and where the food's coming from. We don't have to worry about all these things. If the grass of the field are dressed like this, your Father in heaven knows your needs. Jesus says, so the Lord is my shepherd. We shall not want, we can trust him to provide the needs that we have for our lives and for our souls. Notice the next verse. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. After we put our lives in his hands, the hands of the shepherd, he will provide. He'll lead us initially in that first journey as we, we convert and give our hearts to the Lord. There's an initial, usually a space of, of some sense of peace, security, joy, in which our, our, um, we're being nurtured in some way, a, a place of green pastures and still waters for us to gather some strength, some spiritual strength, to be comforted, to be loved, a safe harbor. But notice it doesn't stop there. Next verse, he restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. What is the soul? 
He's going to restore it. What is it? What does it mean to have your soul restored? Take away the sin infection. I like the way you said that. He heals our inner self, cleansing our consciences, restoring our individuality, restoring our self-governance, last fruit of the Spirit. We become self-controlled beings. We are no longer controlled by the fear and self-centeredness. He restores our soul. He writes his character into our psyche. Writes his character. How does Jesus do this? It says he leads us down what paths? What's this, what the verse say we just read? Down the paths of righteousness. Is the path of righteousness a legal path? A path of claiming a legal payment to your account so that God will declare you to be righteous even though you're not? Is that what that means? He'll lead me down a path of declared legal righteousness while I remain unrighteous. That's what is taught in the predominant Christian view, including over here at a local Christian university. In their theology department, it is emphasized that you are declared righteous even while you remain unrighteous. That's not where he's leading you. That's a false reality. That's like declaring yourself to be a woman when you're a man. <laughs> I see what you did there. You can declare it. It doesn't make it so. <laughs> And this is, this is why so many people fall into these things, because they're actually indoctrinated into systems of belief that are contrary to reality. Their whole upbringing is taught them, embedded in these ideas. Yeah, you can declare things to be one way when they're really another. That's how God works. He declares when well, we're not. They don't understand the foundational principles they're putting into hearts and minds of people that make them so vulnerable to be manipulated in society. Our God is the creator God. He's the God of reality, not the God of fantasy. He leads us down the path of righteousness. It's not a legal path. It's the path, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that we become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Substitution. We here believe in substitutionary atonement, or Jesus became sin who knew no sin, so that, but here's the reason, we, so that we may become the righteousness of God. We become righteous. It is for healing and restoration purposes, as I explained already in the class, why he had to do it. He leads us in paths which restore us to righteousness, the path that makes us right inside, like he originally intended for humans to be, where his law is living law as the operating principles written into our hearts and minds, so that he and his ways are glorified in our lives. So what does it mean that he does this for his name's sake? What is a name? What does it mean when it's used God's name? God's name means what? Character. His character. So you say, for it's his character's sake. Do you think of any other scriptures that could enlighten us on this point? Did any other come to mind? Well, I've got one here. I'm going to read it to you. This is Ezekiel 36, 22 through 27 from the NIV. That's what it says. Therefore, says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which have been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among them, then the nations will know that I am the Lord. 
declares the sovereign Lord, that the nation will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. When I show myself holy through you before their, their, their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now I will put the spirit in my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. He does, he leads us in the path of righteousness for, did this greater description of Ezekiel sound like being led in the path of righteousness? For his namesake. His name will be honored in the nations through making us righteous. How does that honor his name? How does making us and transforming us and renewing us honor his name? Well, consider this metaphor. A person is dying of terminal cancer. They're wasted, in pain. You can look at them and you can see sickness. They don't look healthy. And a doctor comes along and provides them a cure that doesn't just merely get rid of the cancer. It restores them to vibrant and robust health. Whose name and reputation is magnified in that circumstance? The sick, dying patient or the one who brought the cure? This is how God's name is magnified in us. When we who were dead in trespass and sin come to life and live the vibrant Christian life, loving our enemies and living the principles of God in the community, how could a heart change and be transformed like that? It is only through the power of God and his character and methods and principles are magnified when he has a people living them out, not a people who are legalistic rule keepers who look down their nose judging everybody who doesn't keep their same set of rules and wants to put somebody in a cross to kill them because they broke their rule by healing somebody on Sabbath and we got to get them off this cross by sunset so we can keep the Sabbath because we're really good law keepers and we want people to know that God that we keep his law for. That is not it. It's by being Christ-like in our hearts and minds, and living that out, that his name is not, keep on going. So we, we come, we don't have any needs. He, he strengthens us in, a val, in the, uh, in the um, green pastures and still waters, and he leads us in a path of righteousness for his namesake to restore our soul. And where does he then lead us? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. What is this about? Is this the valley of death or the valley of the shadow of death? Is it primarily about facing what we call death, the first death, the sleep death, or is it actually about something else? What's the context? The context is our shepherd leading us in a path of righteousness for the restoration of our soul. Isn't that the context? For delivering us from sin. And what must each person go through in their own individual experience if they are led by the shepherd in the path of righteousness to have their soul fully restored, what must they go through? 
The shepherd, after providing for us, strengthening us, leads us in a path that restores us to righteousness. And that path to righteousness is through the valley that feels like we're going to die. It is a valley in which self surrenders all to Jesus and is crucified. The valley which frees us from the domination of fear and selfishness. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 6.4 We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live new lives. The path of righteousness goes through the valley that feels like we're going to die because we're dying to fear, selfishness, and sin. We're dying to the old self. And an old is gone and a new self arises. And that's a painful, fearful time. But we are comforted by our shepherd. I'll get that in a second. Linda. Yeah, uh, the other thing I noticed is that there's a change of person in this six verses. It starts off as, he's doing this, he's doing that, isn't he wonderful? It isn't till this this particular verse that you've just spoken that he becomes you. You. Pronoun. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, you, yeah this, because you can't go through this valley without... Choosing to go through this valley. But the he that was referred to is now, for you are with me. And ever after that verse, it's always you and not he. So I'm suggesting that that very act helps you to become close to God. The, the tough times we hate and we try to avoid at all costs are the very thing that brings us closer to an understanding and, and in a relationship with God. So in these verses, it's depicted by changing he, he's wonderful. Now he's you and me. He's not just he. You gain a whole separate relationship with him than you ever, even when things were nice. Thank you. So he leads us in a valley in which we have to face our own fear, our own sinfulness, our own carnal nature, and we must die to that old self in a trust relationship with the shepherd. Uh, and the old carnal nature is no longer dominant in us. Our shepherd's rod of love and staff of truth comfort us and guide us and protect us so we will not fear evil. Our shepherd brings us into this valley over and over and over again until we finally die to the old life in that valley. And I see many patients of mine who are in a life of some type of sin, addictions or whatever, and they get themselves into some type of trouble and they're suffering the consequences and the weight of it. And they fall on their knees before Jesus. Please forgive me. Oh, and, and what happens is they feel they experience God's grace. And they have some of the guilt and shame removed. And they feel some of the joy of his continuing love for them. And they're in the green pastures and still waters. And then Jesus begins to lead them down the path that will restore their soul, the path of righteousness. And he takes them down a path in which they have to face temptation in which they have to face those things inside themselves that cause them to comfort themselves with their destructive behaviors. And many of them, after things are good and the crisis is over, things are starting to improve, they're feeling better, 
a difficulty comes in life, and rather than dying to self, they turn back to the historic self-coping, destructive pathways to try and cope, and you repeat this cycle over and over again. And Jesus will continue to lead you down this path until you finally get the victory over self. Because it's the only way to restore righteousness in you. It's the only way. Uh, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You know what? My head with oil, my cup runs over. Having died to self, having had the righteousness of Christ reproduced within us, having new hearts and right spirits, having our souls restored, we will face enemies in this world, enemies of God in our communities, families, and churches. But we will not despair because God prepares a table filled with everything we need, the unleavened bread, the new wine that uh, nurtures our souls, and we continue to grow in righteousness. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Ever. Following our shepherd, living in harmony with him, uh, living out his design laws, we grow in goodness and live out his principles. Thus we are living stones built together into a house for the Lord. This is why we will dwell in his house forever, because his house is built from the living stones. And, and it's not that we'll be trapped in a, in a building up there and we can never leave it. We're part of it. Uh, I'm going to jump to Friday. If we have time, we'll come back to some of the other days. There's some interesting things in the other days. But in Friday's lesson, there's a quote from Messages to Young People. And I wanted to read this quote um, from Messages to Young People, page 63 and 64. Those who are finally victorious will have seasons of terrible perplexity and trial in their religious life. But they must not cast away their confidence. For this is a part of their discipline in the school of Christ. And it is essential in order that all dross may be purged away. The servant of God must endure with fortitude the attacks of the enemy, his grievous taunts, and must overcome the obstacles which Satan will place in his way. But if you keep looking up, where we fix our eyes? Fix your eyes on Christ. If you keep looking up, not down at your difficulties, you will not faint in the way. You will soon see Jesus reaching his hand to help you. And you will only have to give him your hand in simple confidence and let him lead you. And you become, as you become trustful, you will become hopeful. You will find help in Christ to form a strong, symmetrical, beautiful character. And uh, a little over a week ago, I woke up at five in the morning with something on my mind I was tired, and I just rolled back over and tried to go back to sleep. But at 5.15, it was still on my mind. And at 5.30, I couldn't get it off my mind. So I got up and went to my uh, computer, and I wrote down what was on my mind. Uh, it took me about 20 minutes. And it's the blog for this week. And then I prepared class, and I read what I just read. And uh, and so uh, yeah, I'm just going to share with you the blog for this week after reading this, this uh thing from Friday. I thought, well, I have to share this then. Um, if you keep looking up, not down at your difficulties and not faint upon the way, you will soon see Jesus reaching his hand to help you. That was in the quote we just read. And here's my blog for this week. It's called Look to Jesus. When the storms are raging, look to Jesus. When the boat is sinking, look to Jesus. When the tides are rising, look to Jesus. For Jesus is always there. When the cupboards are bare, look to Jesus. When your friends don't care, look to Jesus. When life is unfair, look to Jesus. For Jesus always cares. When the pain just won't stop, look to Jesus. When your heart aches from loss, look to Jesus. 
when all hope seems lost, look to Jesus, for Jesus is always there. When guilt crushes the soul, look to Jesus. When shame takes its toll, look to Jesus. When you feel all alone, look to Jesus, for Jesus always cares. When tempted with doubt, look to Jesus. When fear is all about, look to Jesus. When you don't know the route, look to Jesus, for Jesus is always there. When you don't know why, look to Jesus. When you can only cry, look to Jesus. When you just want to die, look to Jesus, for Jesus always cares. When you feel beaten and low, look to Jesus. When you when trust just won't grow, look to Jesus. When you don't know where to go, look to Jesus, for Jesus is always there. When you don't know the choice, look to Jesus. When you don't have a voice, look to Jesus. When life has no joys, look to Jesus, for Jesus always cares. Always look to Jesus, for Jesus saves, Jesus cares, and Jesus is always there. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for Jesus. No matter the difficulties, trials, and struggles we're going through, we're so thankful for Jesus because Jesus cares and Jesus is always there. We open our hearts and ask that you will come in, fix what's broken, lead us in the path of righteousness for your name's sake to restore our souls that we can be your witnesses here on earth. We pray in your holy name. Amen.